but it's good stuff, and I'm, I'm glad to be back. We are continuing in our series, What We Believe. Um, it's been about the major doctrines of the Christian faith. You know, so far we've talked about, I think we've covered four of them. We've talked about the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of God, which Paul had to deal with. <laughs> How do you talk about God in an hour? Um, we talked about the doctrine of man. We talked about the doctrine of salvation. Bruce did that last week, and it's just fun to watch Bruce preach. He gets all fired up, but he doesn't really move when he gets fired up. He just kind of stands here, you know, and, ah, you know, and people are like, you're like a one-man circus. I'm like, Bruce is like, you know, a one-man robot, you know, he just kind of, but he, you know, I, I praise God for you guys that have been preaching here, and just the way God's gifted you and, and, and your obedience to him. And, you know, it's a nerve-wracking thing to put the study together and, and to wonder if you're on the right track and, you know, if things are right and if that's what, you know, exactly how God wants you to say it and what he wants you to say and, and then to come and deliver. That's the, the nerve-wracking part. And so I just want to tell you guys that I, I, not only do I appreciate you elders, you men that, that serve here, but I know this church appreciates you. And, and uh, so thank you guys. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of sanctification. Oh, what's that mean? What's that fancy word, right? Um, we use that word here at this church pretty regularly. Um, I managed to blend it into, into a lot of sermons and stuff. So you hear that sanctification, you're sanctified and all this stuff. And, and so this morning, we're going, to, we're going to talk about what it is, what it means Great question to ask is, what is sanctification? What is that big word? What is that fancy theological term? What does it mean? Well, I have a few definitions as we get started. I think it's probably befitting that we pray real quick before uh, we go any further. Lord, I, I pray that you would bless this time, that you would give me clarity of mind and speech, that you would give the gathering here, the congregates, the people, the ability to hear and listen and discern, and through the Holy Spirit to apply, and uh, and so Lord, uh, we we will do nothing apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we will sit and hear, and it'll be words, and it'll be another blah 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 speech, and uh, and that's not at all what we desire. And so, uh, Holy Spirit, attend this sermon, speak this sermon, speak the truth here via the word and impact us with it and bless this time and and I think most of all may the Godhead be blessed here Father, Son, Holy Spirit may you be blessed as your truth God is proclaimed may it not fall upon deaf ears today and uh, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ Amen here are a few definitions dictionary.com does anyone ever use that resource it's not terrible I, I don't know about you, but I use a dictionary a lot because I, I keep finding words in the stuff I read that I, I have no, it's like, what is that? So I, I constantly have a dictionary open when I read and study, but dictionary.com's not a bad resource. It's kind of mainstream and basic, but it says sanctification means to make holy, to set apart as sacred, to consecrate. So that's its kind of definition. And the New City Catechism, which is something we use in our family time, um, it's a great resource. It says sanctification is our gradual growing righteousness made possible by the spirits, by the Holy Spirit's work in us. That's a pretty cool definition. I like that one. And then there's the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is uh, I like the most of all these definitions. This is my favorite. It's a little more involved. It says sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man or woman after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. I like that definition of it. It kind of covers all of the characteristics of it in a sense. It's this idea of, and very simply put, we would say sanctification here. Our definition would be like that, but it would be abbreviated, being made like Jesus. That's what sanctification means. It means being taken from point A all the way to point Z, point A being who you are now in Christ to becoming more and more and more like Jesus Christ in word and in deed looking and sounding like him in a sense. And so, but those are a couple of very simple uh, 
definition. So sanctification is like this life process of being made like Jesus. It only applies to those who are in Christ. It's like once you believe, the process begins, and we're going to go over that in a lot of detail. Now, we at RHC believe and teach that there are really two types of sanctification. And this is a big wrestling match in the church, and it has been for centuries and centuries. But we believe and hold and, hold and believe that there are basically two types of sanctification. They're all part of the same vehicle, if you will, or the same object, if you will, but there's two facets to it. Um, a believer will experience both of these forms of sanctification, and the first one would be permanent sanctification. Some people call it definitive. Some people call it definite. I like permanent. So there's permanent sanctification, and then there's progressive sanctification, an ongoing kind of form of sanctification. There's like a permanent one that's kind of one and done, and then there's this progressive aspect to it. And so we hold and teach both of those. Now, the one that's held in contention and argued against by a lot of hyper-grace people is progressive. They think there's once sanctified, that's it, nothing more. But then how do you deal with all these passages that talk about being sanctified, not just fixed? So... Great arguments made against it, but it is so clear in Scripture. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to define both permanent sanctification and progressive sanctification. I will spend more time on progressive because that's our living and position now for many of us and most of us. So number one, we'll take a look at permanent sanctification. What is it? Well, when a person believes in Jesus Christ, when a person repents of their sin and they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as his or her Lord and Savior, he or she is justified before God. Justified means like being given right standing before God. Okay, so this takes place at that moment of faith and belief. And and they are also permanently sanctified. It's like justification and permanent sanctification kind of happen at the same time, which essentially means permanent sanctification essentially means being set apart unto God. So they're justified, they're made right with God, and then they're immediately set apart for God. They are made holy and set apart for God. Permanent sanctification is positional and it's instantaneous. Permanent sanctification is a one-time gracious act of God which can never be changed or removed because it is tied to, wrapped up with, combined with justification which is immutable. Nothing can change your status with God. No sin No stumbling, no failure, no weak faith, no strong faith. Nothing in this life or anything outside that comes at you or that comes from within at times can change your position with God. And we're going to talk about that in a lot of detail next week as we talk about security and assurance. So once you're justified, you're justified. You can't be unjustified. And at the same time, you are permanently sanctified and set apart unto God. And that position cannot be changed either. They're both immutable. Now, there are a ton of verses in the Bible that mention permanent sanctification. And I'm going to give you four. Now, sometimes, you know, they don't use the exact phraseology, terminology we're using, permanent sanctification. But the inference or the application, what they mean the author means is permanent sanctification. So you'd be hard-pressed to find some of these terms. But they are here. They are represented in principle. Acts 20.32 is a great example. And now, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the elders, and now I, elders of Ephesus, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. All those who are sanctified. What he's saying is permanently sanctified. What he's saying is to give you an inheritance among those who have been set apart and made holy once and for all by God is essentially what he's saying. This is an an, an example of definitive, definite, permanent sanctification. You go out and preach the gospel of grace and God saves people and he sets them apart. They are what he refers to here as the sanctified. The church, the true church of Jesus Christ is a group of sanctified, permanently set apart people. Once and for all, done. God's holy elect. 
1 Corinthians 1-2 says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the reference here is to a sanctified body, people who have been permanently set apart and sanctified for Christ, for the glory of Christ, for the honor of Christ, for the purposes of Christ, for the mission of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor uh, revelers, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is some pretty heavy stuff. And he says, and such were some of you. This is who you used to be before Christ. And he says, but you were washed, and what else? You were sanctified. You were washed and cleansed by the blood, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and sanctified, set apart permanently. You don't belong to that old way of life anymore. You are a sanctified saint who belongs to the church, is what he's saying. You used to live that way, and now you're a sanctified person set apart for God's purposes. This is essentially what he's saying. Again, he's, the reference here has to do with a distinct group of people who have been set apart for God through Christ, for Christ, by the Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. I love this. He chose you. I didn't choose him. He chose me. He chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification, meaning what? Through the setting apart. He saved you and set you apart. And he says, by the Spirit and belief in the truth. All four references here, and there are many more, have to do with permanent sanctification, a group that has been permanently set apart. So here we see clearly, just in four examples, of the existence of permanent sanctification. Once and for all, justified, set apart, permanently sanctified, forever and ever and ever. Amen. Now, because of these verses and, and others, we teach that every believer, every person who puts their trust in Jesus Christ, every person who turns away from sin, doesn't mean they don't continue to sin in some sense, but they literally, they, they despise sin now and love Jesus. We teach that every person who does that and makes that commitment to Jesus Christ, first of all, that's an act of God and that's wonderful, but we teach that every person who does that is a permanently sanctified person, is a person who has been set apart unto God and is equally uh, declared holy, and that's an amazing thing that in this sanctification he declares us holy, even though I don't feel holy a lot of the times, but the way he sees me is holy, amazing, and then is also identified as a saint. This is how you become a saint, through faith, you're sanctified, you're now a saint, not a worldly sinner or someone who's lost or an unbeliever, you become a saint. And so this is something we teach and, and hold very seriously. Now here's a question. What role, and I will ask and answer questions throughout this, maybe at least a couple times, but what role do we play in our permanent sanctification? Zilch. Nothing. You know what role you played? You were a sinner. That's the role you played. You just sinned it up. Woo-hoo, sin. That's all you did. You didn't make it happen. You didn't bring it upon yourself. You didn't set yourself apart. Right? Well, I'm just going to set myself apart. Onto another 12-er. I mean, that's what you set yourself apart for. <laughs> You're not setting yourself apart for God. There is no play, no work, no nothing that you have done to do this. We simply, how, do, how, do, how, does it, how is it achieved? We simply exercise the free gift of faith, which has been given to us by the Holy Spirit. You know, we reciprocate. God regenerates and, and illuminates us, and, and he, he, he causes us to be able to savor and, and, and love him and, and to want him and to pursue him and to forsake sin. And, and, and he does this for us, and, and he gives us this gift. It says in the, in the Scripture in the New Testament that repentance and faith are granted by the Holy Spirit. He gives us both of these things, the ability to exercise them, and we just simply reciprocate. 
We pass from death to life. We love God now. We used to hate him. And we begin to exercise faith. We begin to seek him and begin to believe in him and begin to pursue him and obey him and study the scripture and these sorts of things. That's how it works. That's what the scripture teaches over and over. No one possesses any sort of ability to do any of these things on their own. And so we don't play a part in our permanent sanctification. But I tell you what, we certainly benefit from it. We certainly benefit from it, but it's not something that we do. And, and you must also know and understand that this is something, when it takes place, it isn't something that we resist. It isn't something that we resist and say, I don't want you, God, and I don't want to be sanctified, and I don't want these things that you're offering. They're not just a mere offer. They are a sovereign act and sovereign rescue. And so we don't resist and we don't hesitate because God has already regenerated and illuminated us. It, it's like he gives us life and something that we've never experienced before. And we realize it's what we've been searching for our whole life. And we say to ourselves, something has happened. And I want to know this God. And I want to understand him. And I want to love him. And I want to respond to him. And that's how it works. That's how it happens. So that, in a nutshell, is permanent sanctification. It's an act of God. It happens about the same time we're justified, about the time we begin to exercise faith. The exact order is, is tough to figure out, but we need to know that it's all God, no matter what. No matter how we orchestrate it, but it's an act of God. It's a work of God. And it all these things all kind of happen at the same time. And then we get to enjoy it for eternity. Permanent sanctification. Now, secondly, we will look at progressive sanctification. It is a bit different from permanent sanctification. Permanent sanctification is a one-time act, while progressive sanctification is a lifetime journey. Okay? I rarely say things that are quotable, but I felt like that was a decent one. Of course, I'm patting myself on the back and just rendered this entire sermon null and void. Um, permanent sanctification is a one-time act. It's done. You are set apart. Progressive is an ongoing walking in faith. It's an ongoing journey. It's an ongoing thing. Progressive sanctification has to do with us being conformed to the image of Christ or being made more and more like Jesus every day. Now, there are a lot of verses in the Bible which refer to this process, this progressive sanctification. I'll give you four of those. And this is, these are, this is like the evidence that just refutes all those who reject this doctrine, which is very important for us to know and understand and believe and to teach others. John 17, 14 through 17, I have given them, this is Jesus's Probably one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. Before he goes to Gethsemane, he prays this over the disciples. And it's a pretty lengthy thing, but I've just got a little nugget of it here for you. I have given them your word. He's referring to the apostles and probably anyone else who's following him, disciples that are close by. He says, I have given them your word and the word, the, I've given them your word and the world, pardon me, the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then he says this, sanctify them sanctify them in the truth. And he says, your word is the truth. Okay, sanctify here doesn't have to do with a separated, permanently separated body of people. It has to do with a process of making them, these guys different, making them more like the one who's speaking at this very moment, Jesus. Sanctify them in the truth. And this is an important thing to know. It is through the truth that we are sanctified. The, the scripture, the Bible, what God has said. His word, his word has power. He spoke all things into existence. He spoke your salvation into existence by the might of his lips and tongue and words. His words carry power. 
And so Jesus says, sanctify them, make them more like me, essentially. Make them different. Continue to make them holy, holier and holier in word and deed. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. Some of your translations might say sanctified. Being transformed, or could be translated sanctified, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And what is the Apostle Paul saying here? He is saying that, man, we are being sanctified into the same image from one degree to another. Into whose image? The image of Jesus. Remember, progressive sanctification, the goal is to make us like Jesus. And so that's what he's saying here. Sanctified into the same image that we would all, all the Corinthian believers and every believer afterwards and that was living during that time would be made more, transformed, sanctified more into the image of the one, Jesus Christ. That is the goal of progressive sanctification. Fantastic passage. Colossians 3.10 Put on the new self, Paul exhorts the Colossians, which is being renewed. Renewed could be very easily um, interpreted as sanctified. Being renewed, being sanctified in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is another example of the process of progressive sanctification, being made more into the image of our creator. You know, we're all image bearers, but sin has marred and distorted and affected that image. And sanctification, kind of the goal of that is to restore us as image bearers, that we would rightly bear the image of God in and through Christ. That's what he's speaking of here. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24. I think we read this earlier, didn't we not? May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Okay, look, if only permanent sanctification exists, then why is he talking about a complete, God bringing people to a complete sanctification? He says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. What he's saying is finish the work of making you like Jesus. That would be the Phil translation. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who call, he who calls you, I love this, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Isn't that great? What a promise. You think that you've stopped where you're at? If you're in Christ, you ain't stopped. You might be in first gear. Some of us could be in reverse. It happens. We regress at times a bit. But for the most part, he's going to finish it. You're going to be like Jesus someday. And if that doesn't whet your appetite and get you excited, you're probably not a believer. Because that is the idea that we would be made more and more becoming like Christ, who is perfect and brilliant and merciful and gracious and awesome and God. Now, that's the one thing that we won't be is God. But we will be like him in every way, in almost every way at least. He, calls, he who calls you is faithful, Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Godhead. He will surely do it. He's going to sanctify you completely. I love that. Now, I've got some slides. We never do slides. And this is probably going to get jacked up. Not because Cameron's not good at it, because we don't do slides. It's very foreign. But I, I figured we could do some slides that might help to kind of show you, to give you a visual of what sanctification looks like. And there's some examples that I've got up there and all that. But can you put that first slide up for me? Okay, we'll begin with this one. And you have no idea how hard it is for me not to be running up and down the aisle right now. I know there's a camera on me, so I have to stay right here. I hate it. Um, we need a guy back there going like this, you know. So on the left, we have conversion. We have the time that this person, whoever it is, this make-believe, believed. And we have justification, which is by faith alone, right, in Christ alone. And so um, 
this is the starting point right here, okay? And then all the way over on the, on the right side here, you have death, physical death, the person passes away, and you have glorification. This is like completion of sanctification. Woo, I'm like Jesus now. In between, you have progressive sanctification. You have the process. You have life. You have living. That's what it looks like, except it's way more extraordinary and fun and challenging. That's a bloody line for crying out loud. But that's kind of where it takes place in between those two highly significant and important moments in a person's life. Now, give me the next slide. Okay, this is Fred. Fred is a 41-year-old single male. No, he's not. Um, so here you have kind of like what Fred's life looks like. Okay, you have birth. You have conversion. Justification happens there. Moment of faith, that kind of stuff kind of works out. And then you have his life, and, and it's kind of like a ladder, right? It's kind of like stairs, right? Because I've never seen a straight line. Nobody just, you know, goes from rebirth to, you know, and just perfect, and they don't have ups and downs and, and difficulty and challenge, right? So, so Fred kind of represents like the average, normal, regular believer, okay? I, I would almost call him the ideal believer. His life is, is marked by upward progress. He's becoming more and more like Christ during his life. And there's ups and downs, and it's wavy and all that. He, he dies a, a horrific death, and then I don't know how he died. And then he just goes off into glorification. Okay, so this is Fred. All right, give me the next one. This is fun. This is Daphne. It was my wife's idea to use the Scooby names, not mine. I figured if I used all your names, he'd be like, he's talking about me. He's got my graph up there. That's my graph. So this is Daphne, right? You got birth, you got conversion, you got, whoa, not a whole lot going on there for the first, you know, 20, 30 years. It's just kind of, slow progress, a little bit of progress, you know, a little bit of ups and downs, and then it, her life, you know, she, she begins to kind of grow more and more like Christ, and these things start to happen, and then, bam, some sort of life event happens. Something drastic, something dramatic happens, and from there, it's just, she's like a shuttle take, she's like a rocket, right? You, you know people like this, maybe you're one of them. Maybe you started young in the faith and you're just kind of creeping along, making a little bit of progress, kind of becoming more and more like Christ in these things, and then something major happened, and that was a turning point for your life. And from there, you just kind of, you know, you still got this, but you were climbing, I would say, better. So that's Daphne. Give me the next one. <laughs> Velma. So she, she's born, she's converted, and, and wow, man, she's just, you know, really on fire. Remember how we used to say that? Oh, he's new, he's in the faith, he's new in the faith, he just started believing. He's on fire. I never knew what that meant because usually fire consumes and kills. Um, but, right? Oh, he's on fire. for the, If he was on fire for the Lord, he would be like Nadab and Abihu and dead. Um, so anyway, so she's climbing, she's growing, she's maturing, she's, you know, she's becoming like Christ, and then something happens, and pfft, she just kind of plateaus. Just, you know, woo hoo hoo And just kind of, there's a little bit of activity, but it just kind of planes out. And, and then she dies, and then she goes off into glory. Now notice that because she plateaued, she didn't lose her salvation. You don't lose your salvation under any circumstances. But this is an interesting phenomenon, and it happens very often. You've probably met people, maybe you've experienced this, where you, know, where you started out real strong, and you were really pursuing the Lord, and reading, studying, doing all these things, and becoming like Christ, your speech, and your life changed, and all that, and then you just kind of got stale, and just kind of went like that, and just kind of plateaued. It happens. Okay, next slide. Shaggy. <laughs> Poor Shaggy. So Shaggy represents a whole lot of Christians in the church. And any one of us, you know, we laugh at it and it's silly and it is because the name's funny. But the reality of this is so true. You know, Shaggy gets saved and, and he makes progress and he's learning and growing and being conformed to the image of Christ. And then something happens, some great sin, some devastating sin, adultery, something, something just blasts him and he drops he plummets, but by the good grace of God, God restores him. You know, maybe after a time of repentance and reflection, God restores him, and he begins to 
kind of get back on it, you know, and he's growing again, and he grows through that experience, you know, he learns through that experience. Sure, he's done something really foolish, but who doesn't? And I'm not justifying what he's done. Now, I want to avoid great sins, don't you? But it happens once in a while. Sometimes we lose our, our way and we get wrapped up into stuff, and so this happens to him, but because God is amazing, because the gospel applies to believers just like it does unbelievers, after a time of, of being fallen, he's restored and he begins to climb again. It's wonderful. And then he, he dies a glorious death. <laughs> and then he's glorified. The whole time in between is the sanctification on every one of these. The whole time in between, the good, bad, and the ugly, it is the progressive sanctification. Next one. And then we've got the mutt. We've got the dog. And Scooby's example is he's born, a litter of 11, he gets converted, this is weird, and then he just sort of putts along through life and makes a little bit of progress, but not a whole lot. You know, there's not a whole lot going on there, but you can tell he's different, you know, but there's, you know, he's not really being changed and conformed to the image of Christ like maybe others might be, like even Shaggy, right? So, and isn't this like totally indicative of the church today? Wouldn't you say that most believers are right there? Little progress? Not much going on there? I don't think there's any more slides. And then he dies and he goes to dog heaven and he's glorified. Okay. Now, what, for what purpose did I show these slides? Just to give you some sort of illustration of what our lives actually look like in real time. Notice one thing about every slide. Every one of them features progress. Notice that. Maybe it's a little bit. Maybe it's a little less. Maybe it's extraordinary. Maybe it's in the middle. Progressive, by definition, means progress. And I will tell you this, every believer... There should be progress, some kind, even if it's minimal, even if it's small. Question, very important question for all of us, especially me, this guy right here. What role do we play in our progressive sanctification? A massive role, huge. See, we play no role in permanent, it's an act of God, but in this one, we actually have a part to play. And this is where guys get all crazy. They start saying, that sniffs of Rome. It smells like Roman Catholicism where you're trying to earn your way. This doesn't have anything to do with salvation. This has to do with sanctification, different thing. It's a part of salvation, but we're not getting ourselves saved. Once saved, always saved, but sanctification follows. What role do we play in this? A major role. Progressive sanctification is a synergistic. Can you say that word? Yeah. It has the word sin in it. It's like, what? It doesn't mean that. It's a synergistic act, which ultimately means it requires dual involvement. Monogism means one. See, permanent sanctification is a monogistic act, God alone. But progressive sanctification is a synergistic act, dual involvement. And, and it involves God, the Holy Spirit, and the child of God, the believer, God's involvement in this synergistic act, in this process, in our progressive sanctification, is that he works to conform us to the image of Christ, progressive sanctification, through the things he has provided, such as his means of grace. Our involvement is that we engage the things he has provided and thus receive his instruction, and thus receive his transformative power, and are sanctified. Now, according to historical orthodoxy, according to the church for two millennia, the means of grace are three things. These are the three primary things that God uses in our lives as we engage them to make us like Christ, to progress us in sanctification. Prayer, the preaching of the word, and the sacraments. Those are the three classically held 
means of grace, the things that God has provided that help us with our sanctification. R.C. Sproul made the following comments about each of these. These are good. He says, prayer is more than empty words. It establishes communion between us and the creator, thereby empowering us for belief and faithful, effective service. Prayer is a a unique thing that's not filled with empty words. I suppose some of our prayers, if they're not offered in sincerity, can be very empty. But for the most part, prayer is communing with God who speaks to us and in whose breath there is life and power and transformation and progressive sanctification. So when we pray and receive instruction, he's working on us. But if we're not praying, work isn't happening. Transformation isn't happening. And that was my add-on to that. And Sproul goes on to say, preaching is not a powerless human explanation of a biblical text, for the Spirit accompanies it so that God's Word achieves its purposes. And according to all the passages I read about progressive sanctification, the purposes there are to make us like Jesus. God's Word is what achieves those purposes. It's the vehicle that He works through to make us like Christ as we listen as we apply. And then Sproul says about baptism, he says, baptism and the Lord's Supper, these would be the sacraments, right? Are not mere memorials that we do simply because Jesus tells us to do them. Rather, we participate mysteriously in Christ himself when by faith we take part in these ordinances. It's like there's a unity and a union and a connection with Christ in the sacraments. And when we are near Christ and close to Christ and Christ is in us, his power is there. He is sanctifying and making us like himself. This is what Sproul means. When we engage in prayer, when we engage in preaching, not so much as you preaching, but you listening, when we engage in the sacraments, baptism, communion, God sanctifies and makes us more and more like Jesus. It's the work he does through those tools. Now this is why we take prayer, this is why we take preaching, This is why we take the sacraments, these three things, very, very seriously. And you see them in every worship service. We don't do them because the Lord said, just do those and just have a good time. We we do them because we know and we understand that it's within those means of grace. As we engage with sincere, open, humble hearts, God is working here. God is taking me from being a little bit like Jesus on Tuesday and then on Sunday, quite a bit more like Jesus. You know, it's this process. We engage these things because that is where the process happens. That's why we have these things. And I know we say so often that our communion is a time of remembrance of what Christ did, but it's also a time of communion where we are intimate with the Lord Jesus Christ and experience him and his body and his blood in a very unique and spiritual, amazing way and are made like him in that moment, more and more. And so there's a method behind our madness here in what we do. We put forth the things that God has provided, especially in our worship services, because we want to be like Christ. I don't want to be like Phil. I know him. I mean, the new feels better than the old one, I'll tell you that. But I want to be newer and newer and made newer and newer and, and become like Christ in every way that I can. And, and, and I hate the cop-out, fatalistic mentality of Christians today. Well, it's ultimately going to happen at glorification, so why bother now? What? If you don't desire to be more and more like Christ in this life, you ain't a believer. So quit screwing around and fooling around with this stuff. 
a Christian should never say, a true Christian should never say to himself, well, you know, I, I got saved and I'm, I'm living and kind of doing my thing and I can't wait for glory because then I'll be made just like Jesus. No, a true believer should say, I want to be more like Christ tomorrow and today and the next day and the next week and then take these things that God has prescribed seriously and engage them so that we can be more and more, made more and more like Christ. Amen? But you know how many people are out there that just, they get saved apparently and then just kind of go with the flow and are waiting for that, that final day when that'll all come together, but in this life I'll just kind of do whatever? No. This is why we take these things seriously. This is why we feature these things at every weekend service or our services every weekend. With the exception, I must say, of baptism because we don't have a tank. <laughs> and we need to figure out how to do that because I think it would be wonderful to baptize people during our services. And I think people would want to be baptized. And, you know, to wait to a couple times a year to do it out at the river out there. And it's just, you know, we should be able to baptize at any time, I think, whenever God says go. So we need to figure out some kind of a trough. <laughs> I don't know. And, and, and we've been talking about doing it. And, you know, everything costs money. It's like, you can't, you know, it's like, can you just give us something for free, somebody? Well, we want to do that. We want to, we want to partake in that part of the sacrament too. There's only two, and, and we don't get to do one of them very regularly, and I, I think we should rethink that. I like what, uh, what John Wesley said. I like what he said about progressive sanctification. He said, everyone, he's speaking of believers, though born of God in an instant, yea, and sanctified in an instant, yet undoubtedly grows by slower degrees. There's a lot of wisdom packed into that statement. That's scriptural. You know, every person born of God, born again, a born again Christian, if you will, they are set apart undoubtedly, but they are also being set apart daily and made more and more into the image of Christ. Progressive sanctification. That's a great quote. Are there other resources that... Uh, and tools that God uses to sanctify us. Absolutely. Absolutely. The primary are his means of grace. And probably every one of these things that I'm going to name is sort of an extension of those primary things. Here's some examples of things that God uses to sanctify, to make us more like Christ. Bible reading. <laughs> every one of us in this room has the ability to read the Bible. We may not always have the ability to understand exactly what we're reading. When I first got saved, I read the Bible back to back, cover to cover, twice in one year, and I had no idea what most of it said. And it's amazing how now, even today, 10, 15 years later almost, I can, yeah, 15, 14 years, whatever, I can recall stuff that I read from just reading it. And now I have a better sense of what some of that stuff meant. But God works in and through Holy Scripture. And when we read it, he can be working in that moment as we're reading and doing something to you and then maybe doing something through you. Bible reading, that's just reading. How about Bible study? That's not just, you know, I read six chapters today. You know, that's, I read two verses today and I wrote a whole bunch of notes and I meditated on it. And, you know, there's a difference between study and reading. Every Christian should read the Bible, just read it. And every Christian should study the Bible, just study it. Take passages and break them down. Get a concordance, get, get, get some, you know, some commentaries and things and do some devotional kind of study. Study the word. Why? Because in the study of the word, you're probably going to meet with the author. And he's probably going to have an instruction or two for you and then empower you to do these things. And guess what? You just became more like Jesus. Progressive sanctification. How about verse memorization? And verse, uh, not just memorization, but meditation. How many of us just take a verse and memorize verses? Do we memorize verses? That's one thing. But do we actually just meditate on a verse too? You ever just read a, a, a text, a verse, a passage, and you just stop there and you just keep thinking about what it says? 
I've been reading a lot in the Psalms lately, and those are great places to park and just to sit there and, Lord is my shepherd. Meditating on Scripture. Meditating on Scripture. Memorizing Scripture. Guess what? God can meet us in those times of that kind of work that we're doing, and he can speak truth and, and change us and make us more like Christ. He can sanctify us in a progressive way. How about Christian fellowship? Christian fellowship isn't, hey, we all gathered down at RHC for a potluck and we talked about McNuggets. That's a potluck. Fellowship is eating chicken nuggets, talking about them and how disgusting they are made from goo, and then also talking about Jesus, talking about the word, talking about the truth, praying together, exhorting one another, encouraging one another, sharpening iron, you know, those little terms and things that we use. When we come together, we are edifying and building one another up. That's, that's the fruit and the meat of fellowship. And, and how many of us, with a show of hands, have sat with a brother or sister and, and we had a conversation and it was so edifying and you walked out of it and you felt different and you felt like you might be more like Christ. How many of you have experienced that? I have. Now, I get it. I've had a lot of conversations and interaction with people where I came out of it feeling beat up or felt dirty. I needed to go shower. I can't believe some of the things we talked about. What on earth were we thinking when we talked about that stupid thing? I mean, that happens. We screw up. That's not profitable, though. But when we come together in fellowship and we talk about the truth and we talk about testimony and, and how God is working out the truth in our lives, that can be a mutually edifying thing. I had a fantastic, I was exhilarated after this conversation the other day. I went to lunch with a friend who's exploring Reformed theology. You know, when we sat over at Rock and Bees and ate food that's going to kill us and talked about the doctrines of grace for an hour and 20 minutes, when I came out of that, I mean, a lot of times when I meet with people and they're asking questions, I'm exhausted. I came out of that thing like Fred Astaire, man. I was like, I moonwalked all over McHenry. About three hours later, you know, you kind of go back to the normal, right? But that was fellowship. We were building each other up and encouraging each other. And by golly, I was preaching right there in Rock and Bees. He looked at me and went, you're getting loud. I'm like, I don't care. Yes, I do. Never mind. Sorry about that, ma'am. You know. How about Christian service? One of the things that God has used in my own life to sanctify and, and to make me more like Christ or to conform me to the image of Christ, to mature me in the faith, what do we want to call it, whatever. One of the things that he's used, and I would say almost more than anything else, is service. If you become, When I became a believer, God just gave me the gumption to do it, but I just immediately got baptized with my wife, and we immediately got plugged in and started serving in ministry, and we were in youth ministry, and it was amazing, and I knew nothing. I was like, they're like, hey, what do you know about Jesus? He loves me. You know, I, I didn't know anything. I, I didn't know a whole lot. Countryman always tells about how he used to, you know, his testimony in the first few years of his salvation. You know, he said, Jesus loves me. And that's it. He died for me. And you're going you're gonna to go to hell. You know, it's like, yeah, that, that was pretty much me. Blew my whole family out. But I got plugged in and started serving. And, and in the context of serving, I was rubbing elbows and shoulders and fellowshipping with more mature saints and believers. And, and I was hearing the word more. And there was just more biblically-based, gospel-centered stuff happening in that context of service, which means God was constantly speaking to me and blessing me and transforming me. And, and I don't want to sound like I'm anywhere near the end of the process here. I got a long ways to go. But because I stepped out and began to serve, God used that context of service as a place for progressive sanctification. And one of the things that saddens me deeply about believers today is that so many, you know, it's the 20% rule, so many, the vast majority don't engage in service and rob themselves of sanctification and rob the church of service. It's a tragedy. You can actually serve the Lord 
And part of it can be for your own faith and growth. There's nothing wrong with that. But we don't think like that. You rob yourself. Massive. Christian giving. Well, how can giving have to do with that? Well, let's just think about who Jesus is. Actually, when you give, you are being like Jesus because he gave it all. In giving, and I'm talking about right giving. I'm not talking about some 10% rule. I'm not talking about the Old Testament thing. I'm talking about giving with a joyful heart in the New Testament. I'm talking about giving with a joyful heart, whatever it is that God has worked out with you. But within that giving, you are actually being like Christ because you're being generous. And every time you obey in that way, you are made a little bit more and more like Christ. Giving like releases us and frees us from the bondages of consumerism and all the crap in this world because the world is all about that. In giving, you're not only being like Christ, you're being made more and more like Christ. It is a tool that God uses. Giving is, is, is an amazing opportunity that we have been given and even commanded to do. Healthy theological conversations and debate. Notice how I couched it with healthy. Sometimes the unhealthy ones can be pretty edifying too, right? Because you can come out of it going, I was a buffoon in that conversation. I, made a, I hurt that person emotionally, spiritually, and I need to repent and make that right. So that can be a good thing for you after the fact, but you've caused damage beforehand. But healthy dialogue, conversation about the truth, which happens in fellowship in these other areas, but that is a... That is a great place for sanctification to take place, that God would work within those conversations, within those debates, within those conversations. And also extra biblical reading, important. Reading the scripture is key, that's primary, that's the first thing we do, but people have written stuff about the truth here that's just, there's just some really, really good stuff out there. Doctrine, books on doctrine, books on theology, all great resources to help in our sanctification. Our website states something very important about God's word and sanctification. We have a small column or section or a couple of paragraphs on it because it's a doctrine that we teach here. It says there, and this is quoting, I believe, MacArthur, somebody from Grace to You. It says, through obedience to the word of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the believer is able to live a life of increasing holiness in conformity to the will of God, becoming more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it takes active participation in and obedience to the word of God if we want to be made more and more like Jesus Christ. It's not just reading it and looking at it and marinating on it. It's actually doing it and obeying it too where there's power and transformation, sanctification. Without the word and obedience to the word, we will remain stagnant, we will remain plateaued, and we will remain as spiritual babies. Mama, on the bottle. It happens. Anyone ever comes to you and says, I just, I don't feel like I'm growing. I'm not these things. You know, the first thing you should say is, where are you at with the word? Are you reading the word? Are you obeying the scripture? And you say these things in love because you want to see them emerge and like the phoenix rise above these things. But this has so much to do with it. Now, you remember Fred? Remember that guy? Stud muffin? What is the secret to his sanctification success, if you will? And I hate the term success. I couldn't come up with anything else with an S. What is the secret to his process and his steady growth? His victory after victory after victory. What is it? Discipline. Fred is the type of believer who regularly engages in the means of grace and all the other things God has provided. Fred attends church regularly. He, he prays regularly. He listens to the word preached. He partakes of communion. He's already been baptized. He reads and studies his Bible. He meditates on scripture. He memorizes scripture. He fellowships regularly with other believers. He serves his church and community. He gives generously. He talks about the truth and engages in healthy debate. He reads solid and trustworthy authors. Everyone that's of 100 years been dead. You don't read the stuff today. Some of it, but most of it's trash. 
He reads the saints of old. This is what he does. He engages in all of these things. He is obsessed with and fascinated with Jesus and wants to be like Jesus. And so he takes every opportunity and every tool and every resource that's been made available to him. He actively engages in all of them. Does he do it perfectly? No. Does he experience little lulls? Yes. But for the most part, he is a savage when it comes to these things. He wants to be like Christ. And so he lives a life of discipline. Fred is active with his faith. Fred wants to become more and more like Jesus. Fred desires to glorify Christ in all things. Fred is heavenly minded. If any of us in this room today desire to be sanctified like this, then we must do as Fred does. We must engage and continue to engage in all that God has provided for our sanctification. We must be doers of the word, not mere hearers. Now, I'd like to raise an alarm. There is a fair amount of unsanctified people floating around in the church today. In every church, probably this one too. These people who are just sort of floating around say that they believe in Jesus, but yet they remain unchanged. They exhibit no repentance and no sanctification. They do not live their life as a set-apart person, one who's been permanently set apart as a member of the body of Christ, as a member of the sanctified. And they certainly don't live it in a progressive sense where they're being changed. If a person truly believes in Jesus, permanent and progressive sanctification will be present. They will begin to exhibit the characteristics of a set-apart person. They will begin to exhibit the transformative and sanctifying work of God at some level. Now, in closing, I'd like to put before you some simple and easy marks of a saved and sanctified person. These would be just some generic things that are going to be present in the life of a person who is truly saved and truly sanctified. Number one, love for the Father, for the Son, and for the Holy Spirit, for the Godhead. That would be the number one characteristic, that there is a genuine love for God. Number two, love for others, especially believers. Why do you put such a high emphasis on believers? All of the exhortations from the Apostle John and his epistles have to do with the church. Love one another. We are to love the bride of Christ in an extraordinary way. It doesn't mean we don't love the world, but our brothers and sisters in Christ get the most from us in terms of those things. That we love them, that we're mad about them, that we're crazy about them, that we provide for them, that we care for them. Christ died for them. Love for truth, the Bible. Love, you love the truth? You love this? Does your heart ever skip a beat when you walk by and you see your Bible sitting on something? Oh, oh. For hatred of sin. A true believer, a true per, a person who has been truly saved and sanctified hates sin. It doesn't mean that they don't sin. It means that they hate it when they do it. And they hate the temptation and everything that has to do with it. I hate sin. Why? Because God hates sin. And I love God. I love God more than my sin. Confession. They confess their sins before God and even before other brothers and sisters in Christ. Repentance. They turn away from sin. As they sin and learn about that, they 
have the habit of turning away from it, rejecting it. I'm sorry, Father, I did that, and I, I want to stay away from that. Help to empower me to do that. There's a repentance. Seven, practical obedience. They want to obey what God has said. They want to obey their heavenly father because they love him. As a child loves his parent, he wants to obey what his parents say. We have a parent, Abba, dad, the best dad you could ever have, the father. And we seek to obey him even in practical ways. Dying to self. <laughs> Dying to self. Rejecting yourself, knowing and understanding that there is really nothing good in you apart from God and that you have no ability or anything apart from God. It all comes from him. Knowing that you're not sufficient in yourself, that you can't save yourself, that you have no righteousness. These kinds of things, denying yourself. Rich told a story the other day. It was great. He used to be a big-time boozer, the guy I met with in the reform thing. And he drove by Nino's, and, and he was super tempted to pull into there at 11 o'clock at night and just drink it up and have a good time. He knows he shouldn't do that because he has a history of that and it causes him great trouble and destroys his marriage and everything else. And he drove by and he was tempted, but he didn't do it. And I said, you just lived out Romans 12.1. You lived as a sacrifice. That's what it means to live as a sacrifice. When the flesh has impulses and temptations, you deny it and do what God calls you to do in that moment. You obey conscience. You obey truth. That's what it means to die to self. When those moments of temptation come, you say, no, yes. That's what it means to live out being a living sacrifice, which is an act of worship. I said, you drove by there and you were tempted and you rejected that and you kept driving. Guess what you were doing? You were worshiping. Huh? Romans 12.1, go read it. That's your spiritual act of worship. Am I in the right passage there? Is it Romans 12.1? Thank God, because sometimes I start quoting stuff and no, that's back over there in James, dummy. De dying to self, Romans 12, 1, living as a sacrifice. Dependence on God, I'm not relying on myself, I got nothing. And lastly, becoming more and more like Jesus in word and deed. All 10, these things should be present, they should be manifest. All at the same time, yes, sometimes. One on this day, yes, but they should be there at some level. Now, do you bear these marks? Let me encourage you, if you have yet to trust in Christ, turn from your sin and believe on him today and begin the journey of faith and sanctification. Christ offers new life, life of mercy, grace, peace, joy, and purpose. You won't find it anywhere else. No drug, no false god, Sex, it's not in any of those things. It's only in Christ. And if you are a believer and you feel discouraged maybe as we often do because like the rest of us, you know, you just feel discouraged because like the rest of us, your life isn't like Fred's. It is and it isn't. Take heart and lean into the master for he will help you. He loves you. Be encouraged by these final words by the late, great John Newton. I love this quote. He said, I am not what I might be. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But I thank God I am not what I once was. Amen. And I can say with the great apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Amen. What's he talking about? He's talking about he hasn't arrived completely yet, but he's on the journey. And that he's not who he was even a year ago. I pray that over you, that you would be encouraged. Be encouraged by the word of God. Know that he will bring. If you are in Christ, no matter what your struggle is, he will bring bring to completion what he began in you. Amen. Father, I thank you for the truth, for your word. 
I pray that you would take it and impress it upon our hearts and our minds today, Lord. I pray that we would be sanctified even in this moment by your truth. Make it so, Father. May we humble ourselves before you and present ourselves to you as a blank canvas. Do a fine work in our hearts, Lord. If there'd be any in this room who have yet to come to know you in a saving way and in a sanctifying way, God, I pray for the miracle of grace in their heart now. Holy Spirit, would you touch them and save them? Open their eyes to the majesty of God in and only in and only through Christ our Lord and Savior. And help us that are on the journey. Some of us have probably been rowing backwards. Maybe some of us have been making a little bit of progress. Maybe some of us are just like a rocket. Meet each one of us where we're at, Father. Continue the grand work of sanctification in our hearts. Give us a great sense and desire for discipline that we would want to engage these wonderful things that you have provided, that we would strongly desire to be made more and more like Christ in this life, and that not a person in this room would sell out for that moment of glory. May we be made more like Christ in this life, and that when he would return, that he would be pleased with us, that we didn't bury the talent. Oh, Father, help us. May we give ourselves to you in this moment, Lord. May we remember what the elements represent, the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ, that we are partaking of him in a mysterious way. Sanctify us in this moment. May not one of us come out of this room today feeling like we've got to do a whole bunch more things because we've got to earn something from God. What we've been talking about here has nothing to do that. May we simply respond out of love and gratitude to you in obedience. You loved us first. Thus we can love you. Sanctify this time, Lord, as we take these elements. Meet with us now. We love you. And we pray this in the mighty, matchless name of Christ. Amen.